You are listening to a sermon preached at Still Bay Baptist Church in Still Bay, South Africa. For more information, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you be blessed in listening to God's Word today. We are busy in a journey through the book of Colossians. Um, We get our title for the whole series from the beginning of Colossians where it says, We are called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And we are in this part of Colossians where he's he's dealing with with a journey of change. Now the moment you are born again, there is a radical change. There is something radically that happened to you. Um, You had a heart transplant. That's what you had. But you can't always see it from the outside. It sometimes takes time for that change to start affecting someone. And the problem for us is that some of the parts of the old man still sticks to you. Some of the parts of who you used to be beforehand is still your habits, your beliefs, your desires and things. They don't just automatically all fall away the moment you get saved. You, be, you get on the journey of change. And I was thinking of an illustration of this. Is, um, if you had to adopt a puppy or a little dog that came out of an bu- abusive relationship, and now you take that dog and you take him to your home, did that dog radically change? Absolutely. He was in a situation where he had a bad owner that abused him, He had to live in fear, he had to live in pain, and that immediately changed. Immediately had a new owner, he had a future, he had someone who's willing to care for him. So was there immediate change? Let me explain it again. (laughs) I'm I'm asking, did something change? Absolutely. Did that change? dog change yes but the problem is is that dog suddenly going to live differently i mean some some of you would have been in this situation is that dog still going to be scared yeah is that dog still going to shiver and do all the things that dogs do that i won't don't know anything about because i've never had a dog um but the point is that that dog's life has completely changed but he's not living the change yet In many areas, that change hasn't become a reality with him. Now, if over time you show love and kindness to the dog and you feed him every time, that dog changes. And it even physically changes often, just the way the fur shines and all those things. Um, And we are not dogs, thankfully. But in the same way, it happens when we are saved. The moment you are saved, radical changes, radical life changes happen. You're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. You are in the kingdom of light. You have been forgiven. The power of sin on you has been broken. You are no longer a slave of sin. All these things are radically changed. But there are still certain things that we still live and believe and think like the old life. And that's what Colossians is dealing with. How do I change that? How do I get through it? And I see that these messages have struck a chord with many of you because we keep on running out of the little papers at the back where people are saying, I need help to put to death these old things in me. I've been a Christian for decades, 
but so much of it is still there. And so um, that's often sadly the problem in the church, is that we are told to change, but we are not told how to change. Would you agree? We are told, no man, you must be more holy and you mustn't do this and you mustn't do this. But very seldom we get the practical help. And then we come to the conclusion, well, I guess I have to pray about it. Is that true? Must we pray about it? Is prayer the solution to the problem? Well, some people have been in this church for a while. Prayer is always a part of the solution but very seldom the only part of the solution. If that was true, Colossians would have been much shorter. He would have just said, oh, you've got a, these old things and you pray. But there's far more than that. He takes you on a journey of things you must actually practically do to start changing. You need to think differently. You need to spend your time differently. You need to worry what you put into your mind. You need to worry what you spend your time on. He takes us on a physical, practical journey of change. And this is a process of heart work and hand work and eye work and lips work. And there's a lot of work involved here. So I'm going, to tell, I'm going to take you through the journey where we've been on so far. And I'm going to explain all the pictures on the screen to you. So the first picture is who you are when you have been saved. Now, this picture has got the picture of a black heart. I'm not saying the person is not saved yet. The black represents the old parts of the man that is still stuck in you. Now from this person, there are then arrows going out from his heart to the outside. And that is all the behaviors and sins that we do that harms us and other people. There's a picture of a very angry guy screaming and shouting. There's someone with um, lightning bolts coming out of his head, anger, frustration. There's the sexual dysfunction of our community. They are the way that we speak, whether it be swear words or hurtful words to other people. So this is, these are all the things that flow out of the heart. And so, like I said, often in the world, they try to solve the problem on these external things. They try to cut off the, the fruits but they don't deal with the root of the problem. Why do I think like this? Why do I behave like this? Why do I speak like that? And so what you then do, and then there's an arrow going back from the behavior into the heart. And so you start looking at your behaviors, and you follow it back to figure out, but what is the cause in my heart that is creating this? And here you must ask a lot of why questions. Why did I get so angry with that person because they said something that I didn't like. Why does something that I don't like cause me so much anger? Because I think people should speak better to me. Why do I think people should speak better to me? Because I deserve better. Why do I think I deserve better? You know, because I'm someone. I'm an important person. Why do you think you're an important person? Um, I, I don't really know. <laughs> do you see how you are self-worshipping? And, and now suddenly you started with anger on the outside, and you realized the cause was that I got angry because someone else didn't worship me as much as I worship myself. And so you start following the journey, and then you get to the heart issues. And then the next thing he says 
is that when you find those roots, you must put them to death. So on the picture, there's a red cross through the black heart inside where you put it to death. Now, how do you put it to death? Please don't take a knife and think, just stab in here and I'll, get, I'll hit all the bad parts. It's not a physical putting to death because it aren't physical things inside you. It's spiritual problems. It's emotional problems. It's thought problems. And so how do you put it to death? Those papers are at the back again. That's a combination of what um, John Owens wrote, writes in his book and some other things. Practical things to do to put it to death. But the one thing you must realize that the journey to change is through your mind. How I think will change what's going on in my heart. That's not my words. That's what Romans says. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So he's saying, not every thought you think should be thought. Does that make sense? Not every thought you think should be thought. He says you must grab hold of it. There's a verse in the Bible that says, grab hold of your thoughts. And this verse says, then you test it. Yo, that person does not deserve to speak to me like that. Grab hold of that thought. Why do I think I deserve to be spoken better, to better? Um, because I deserve it. You understand? So what the result is then to say, no, let go of that thought. Who am I to define how people should speak to me? It's got nothing to do with me. I belong to God. He'll sort out the people. And so the journey to heart changes through your mind. Um, but it doesn't end there. Then once you have put to death the things in your heart, now you'll see the arrows outside follows those journey. And then you are, you are able to stop being angry. That's what we spoke, spoke about last time. He calls it put away. You put to death the things in your heart, and then you put away behaviors that are destructive and sinful and against God's will. So now what we often say is a lot of people stop here and they think, I've got the goal now. And they think of themselves and they say, you know what, I'm not really a sinner. I can't think of really bad things I do. So I guess I'm not really struggling. I can't understand why other people must struggle with sin. This is just half the journey. James says in 4 verse 17, he says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So sin is not just not doing bad things. Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is also not doing good things. If I read God's word and I, and I find things that I'm called to do and I'm not doing it, I'm sinning. And so that's part of the journey. And that's why the journey doesn't end here. And then the next step in this journey is where I put good things in my heart. And that's where we are at the moment. Where we look at the various things that I must put in my heart. Because you must remember, a heart never stays empty. I can't just remove things. There's that picture that Jesus tells in the Bible about the demons that are chased out. And then the room was left empty. And so the demons came back far worse. And so once I've got the demons, the sin, the bad things out of me... I need to fill my heart with good things so that those bad things don't have a place to come back. And then, from then, I then are able to start doing good things. So the picture here is once you've put better things in your heart, the arrows go out, go into 
forgiving people. That's the one picture. Or that we're going to talk about the way that you sing because you just can't not sing because God is so good to you. The other one is helping people who are in need. The other thing is loving and praising God. So these are the good things. Now, what Paul does in the rest of the passage is that he doesn't separate these two. He doesn't say, put this in your heart, 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 and then you can do this and this and this and this. He takes one at a time. He says, if you put love in your heart, this will be the result. If you put peace in your heart, this will be the result. And because Paul does it like that, and the Holy Spirit told him to do it like that, that's how we're going to do it. So the one we're going to look at today is put on love. What's the thing I need to put in my heart first is love. You can open your Bible to Colossians 3. We are going to read from verse 12 to verse 14. Colossians 3, verse 12 to 14. But before we pray, let's just, before we read, let's just pray. Yes, Lord, how wonderfully deep and complex is your word. How sad that for many Christians, they just play their whole life in the shallow end, holding on to the tiny little bits that they see. But we can go so deep. There's so much help. There's so much goodness when we start delving deep into your word. The practical help of this passage is just phenomenal, Lord. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that you who create us, you know how we can be fixed. And you reveal to us how we can be fixed. And so, Lord, help us not to just listen and understand, but to then go and do this work. Do the hard work of stop sitting on the throne of my heart. Stop thinking that I deserve good things and that I deserve to be treated like a king or a queen. But that we come humbly before you as people who deserve nothing but get so much out of your goodness, your grace, everything the Bible says is a gift from God. Lord, and we know it. Help us to live it. Help us to make it part of our hearts and our thoughts and what we are and what we do. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We read there in Colossians 3, 12 to 14, and it says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In the Greek original Bible, this is all one sentence. And uh, at the end of verse 13, there's like a semicolon. So it's, it like takes you into a summary. That's why the love is like a summary of what we are looking at. And so in verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen, holy, and beloved. Now, there are two things we can see here. The first thing is that who is Paul writing to? He's obviously writing to people who struggle with this. Does it make sense? I mean, if, if they didn't struggle with this, why would he make the effort of writing this letter to them? So they were people who didn't forgive. And they were people who were harsh to each other. And they were people. And so he could have come and said, Dear wretched human beings that still hasn't gotten ridden of all your sins. Because it's true. But he greets them and he looks at them how God looks at us. And so... It's unpleasant listening to these messages because it's unpleasant 
to agree and to realize there's still so much nonsense inside me that's causing so much of my troubles. Oh, I love to blame other people for my troubles. But when I really sit down and think about it, it's like, you know, I actually have a massive role to play in all my troubles. It's not pleasant thinking about it. And then you get worried, but what is God going to say now? When I start seeing myself and I know God sees me better than I see myself, what is God going to say? And listen what God says. My chosen ones, my holy ones, my beloved ones. Isn't it beautiful? This doesn't come from a place where God says, I can't understand why you're all such rubbish people. Come on, I deserve better. It comes from a place where God says, I love you so much, let's get better. I want you to do it. Come, there's power available. Let's get better. God's chosen holy ones. The second one that I love about f- from this is that um, we spoke about this on Wednesday at the Bible study, that God never commands us to do anything unless He hasn't done something first. No thing that God tells us to do start with us. He tells you, you can change because you are loved. You can change because you are holy. You've been set apart. You can change because you are chosen. And so God's work empower us to do the things that we need to do. Um, and so this is a hard battle that often seems impossible. But we can do this. We can deal with it. Um, now, I must maybe just say here again, that's not true of everyone here. That message we can't just throw over the church like this and say, you are all God's chosen, all God's beloved, all God's holy. Because he's in this letter talking to people who are born again. And so the invite right from the beginning of this letter is, this can be true of you, be born again. You can be chosen, you can be loved, you can be holy, be born again, come to God, repent of your sins. Turn from your old ways. Accept Him as the King. You're a king on your own heart and you are a rotten, terrible king. You're just messing up everything. Get off that throne. Fall before God. Ask Him to become the king. And if you do that, then this becomes true. Now, if this is what you want to do, please come and speak to me. If you go through this and you realize, my problem is not that I have some stuff stuck in my heart. My problem is that I'm not born again. I'm still old me. I'm still the one that I was when I was born. Come and speak to me. We don't do altar calls because this is a journey we need to walk with you. This is a discussion we want to have with you. We want to help you to understand what you're saying yes to. But don't leave it here. If God is banging on your door of your heart saying, I'm still on the outside, make time. Come speak to me. I will put my off Monday aside to speak to you if need be. Okay. Um, but the second thing we get to from this verse then is the idea that you have to put on. These things aren't going to happen automatically. Just because you're saved, you're not suddenly automatically just going to become more loving and more kind. He says you have to put it on. It's the image of clothing. He says the clothes are there. They're ready. You don't have to buy them. You don't have to make them. You don't have to go fetch them. God has put it there right in front of you. But you need to put it on. You need to do that action. Um, and so what must I clothe my heart, my heart with? The list he has there is compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. All facets of love. 
Now, what are compassionate hearts? To show mercy and concern with the implication of sensitivity and compassion. So what was the old problem? The old problem is that I'm sitting on the throne and everything I do is for my benefit. Everything I do is for my benefit. And the solution is to kick myself out with my desires and put Jesus on the throne. And then the next step is to not just have Jesus in my heart, but to allow other people in as well. The problem was my heart was filled just with me. The solution is get off that throne, get Jesus on the throne, and then get other people in there as well. That they can also be part of the group that you care about, that you think about. Um, and so the question that you have to ask yourself is, who is in my sphere? So if I know who are the people I need to have compassionate hearts with, who did God place in your sphere, in your area? In your work, your neighbors, your family, the people that work for you, the people you work with. Those are the people that say, these are the ones I want you to have compassionate hearts for. And then the next thing is to ask, who did God place in my life today? And then to start seeing life through their eyes. A compassionate heart is someone who says, I'm not going to judge you based on what I see in you from my opinion but I'm going to see through your eyes and see what you're struggling with and what you are needing. That's compassionate heart. The next one is kindness. Kindness is desiring and planning to live in a way that benefits others. Um, and so the thing here is in every situation to desire and plan to live in a way that benefits others. What do we normally ask with our actions? How does this affect me? What do I get out of it? God says, you've put that off. Now start asking every day, how does my actions affect my wife? Have you ever really sat about it? How does the way that I spend my time affect my wife? How does the way that I spend my money affect my wife? How does the way that I speak to people affect my wife? That is just one example. Is it through kindness is it for that person's benefit? Um, Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. You know, <laughs> the problem is, and I don't know why, we see so little of this in the church. People get saved. And they get changed. But man, the moment you tighten the screws, they jump up. It's about me. How dare you? And if I think of my life that the people that I've met who had the greatest effect on me in their Christianity is because they got this right. When, when you lived with them and you walked with them, you just saw this. Everything they did, every thought they think was not with themselves at the center but God and other people at the center. Why do we see so little of it? Because we stop halfway with the salvation thing and we think we've gotten far enough. The next one is humility. Humility is thinking soberly about yourself without arrogance. Often we say um, humility is to think less of yourself. Now that implies that um, there's still a high place 
and you are a bit higher than that, and you must just come down to the right high place for yourself. Humility is to think soberly about yourself. How does God see me? Now again, it's not hatred, it's love, but He sees you as very unimportant towards Him, in, in, in relation to Him. Thinking soberly at yourself without arrogance. Um, now remember in their problem, they had the problem of fake humility. And their humility was actually just a tool to uplift themselves. Oh people, look at how wonderfully humble I am. Real humility is really just finding out who I am. I am loved, I am holy, but I am a child of God. He is my king. All good things come from Him. There's nothing good in me. Anything good that I can do is Him just working through me. That's the right understanding. And then we get to meekness. Meekness is choosing a gentle life where you treat everyone in the best way they can be treated. It's contrasted to harshness. So when I treat someone, how did they experience it? Now this is easy when the person treats you kindly. Then I can treat them kindly back. If someone is meek towards me, I can be meek towards them. If someone is humble towards me. But again he says here, no, 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 no. This is not what we are talking about. We're talking about anyone dealing in meekness. Um, is this possible? Is it possible that if someone treats you harshly, incorrectly, that you can respond and say, I'm going to love you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm just going to keep on being humble. Is it possible? Difficult but possible. Remember, there will be nothing in the Bible that's impossible to do. That will be a mean God. Anything given in the Bible is possible to do. But I'm going to tell you why people struggle to do this. We struggle to do this because we live in a way that I want to base my responses of that person's actions. So if you do this, I do the back. If you treat me kindly, I can treat you kindly. If you are harsh to me, I'm going to be harsh to you. But we need to make a mind shift that I'm not affected by your actions. I'm affected by God's actions to me. So if God is kind to me, I can be kind to you irrespective of what you do. If God is caring and giving to me, I can care for you and give to you irrespective of what you do. Because I don't need your response anymore. I get everything I want from God. And so that is an absolute mind shift to say, I'm not going to feed my soul from you anymore. I'm going to feed my soul from God. People who don't spend time with God cannot do this. Because you don't get from God. But the more you spend time with God and receive and receive His goodness, the more you are able to give it to people who don't necessarily deserve it. Then we get to patience. Now patience is a state of emotional calm in the face of provocation or misfortune and without complaint or irritation. Is this difficult? Absolutely. Is it possible? Yes. In your own strength? No. By feeding on God's patience for you? Yes. I hope you sometimes sit before God and you think, your God, you're still patient with me. You must be a quite an amazing God because I know me. I know how many times I come and ask for things and you help me and I just go back. But you are so patient with me. 
Here I am. I'm still your child. I still receive your goodness. And you use that to then show patience and kindness to others. Um, okay, so that is the things that you need to put on your heart. So these are internal things. These are decisions you make. These are heart changes you make by focusing more on God to empower you to do this. And then he gets to some practical things. He says, well, if you do that, then you are able to bear with one another. Um, the one another now makes it practical with each other, especially the church. Um, what does it mean to bear with someone? To be patient with them. To accept things that might have caused you irritation or anger or frustration in the past. And you just accept it. Now, bearing is not crossing your arms and saying, Okay, I won't do anything about this. That's putting up with something. Bearing is carrying something. To say, I don't like this. This doesn't sit well with me. But I like God and you more that I will bear this. I will carry you through this. Um, bearing... Um, is, like again, treating people how they might not necessarily be deserving. Um, bear, this, the same word bearing um, was often used of Jesus when he dealt with his disciples of little faith. And he says, oh, nation, how long must I bear with you? So this is idea, it's like you are not acting like you should. Oh, but okay, come, I'll carry you. We'll carry on. We'll head for a good direction. The important thing to realize here is that he's not talking about sin. He's not saying, you are living in a sinful way before God. I'm just going to keep on going as if nothing's wrong. We're just going to carry on this situation, carry on. That's not what he's saying. Because the next sentence talks what you need to do about sin. The next one says, And if one is a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. So in a case when it's just about immaturity or different personalities or someone doing something in a way that you wouldn't necessarily have done it, but they're not necessarily wrong. Someone is just grinding you up because of they, they're just so bubbly and extroverted and you just want to sit down and be quiet. That's what we're talking about. In those situations, you lessen yourself and you bear it. But when it comes to sin, he says now, but in a case where someone has a complaint against someone else. So someone did something wrong. What must happen in this situation? In this situation, you must deal with it. The one person must accept responsibility and they must ask forgiveness and you forgive them. That's how you deal with a sinful thing. It's a complaint against each other, forgiving each other. How do you get the strength to forgive? How, if someone, and I know some of you in this church, how absolutely hurt you've been by people when you really didn't do anything wrong. How in that situation can I get to the place where I forgive? You tell me. Prayer is always part of the solution. By not feeding off that person, but feeding off God. I have forgiven, been forgiven much, therefore I can forgive much. And the text even tells us that. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Not as that person has forgiven you, or not as that person has deserved forgiveness, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are able 
to forgive. Okay, then we get to verse 14, where he says, And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Like I said, this is a, follows a semicolon as like a summary, a recap. What is the understanding of all of it? What are these things that I'm putting in my heart? What, how do, what is kindness and humility at all based on love? Choosing love. Now, I heard an interesting thing this week that the guy said, um, is, uh, they was asked, is love a feeling or is it a choice? So let's see. Who says love is a feeling? You've been in church long enough not to put up your hand for that one. Who says love is a choice? And the guy answered, he said, neither. Love is a command. That's even further. It's not, okay, I will choose to love. I hope I get many rewards for this choice of mine. No, love is a command. God said, if you want to be my child, love. It's part of the deal. And so, that, don't see that as a harsh command. See that as a command from a father who knows what's best for you. He wants you to live in a life where you are not forever fighting with everyone around you and are frustrated with everyone around you and always have, have issues with everyone around you. He wants community. He wants care, deep care, deep loving care in the church. That's his desire. And that only starts with love. So in conclusion, let's just do a recap. The primary motive is um, for self-idolatry is self-love and self-worship. Everything I do is done for me. Even the good deeds I do, I do because of how it makes me feel. And you would see this in people who start helping, for instance, in the community. They are on fire. Man, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to help these people. I'm going to go to Aistilbai, and I'm going to go visit the people there. And then you get there, and the lady is like, what are you doing here? It's seven alarm on the TV, man. Can't you? Don't you know what time it is? And you... Go to the next room and you knock on the door and the lady comes like, why are you waking me up at 7 o'clock? You know everyone is sleeping this time of the day. And you go, oh, well, if that's your attitude, I'm not coming again. Do you understand? Your action wasn't love for them. Your action was, it's going to feel nice if I sit there and say, so, so appreciative of my company. And when I don't get that, I give up. If I'm not going to get good feelings from this situation, I'm going to give up. Self-worship. Long ago in a TV series, the one lady challenged the other guy to do a selfless deed. And he couldn't do it. And he said, oh, today I did a selfless deed. I can't remember what he said. He said something. There was a bee and I picked him up and I said, next, sat him next to water and I will never see that bee again and I'm never going to eat his honey. So this was a selfless deed. And she said, and how did it make you feel? Oh, I felt so good. Like, ah, it wasn't selfless. A selfless deed, this love that we are called to do, is to be done for people irrespective of their response. Because again, I'm not doing it for their response. I'm doing it as a response of what God did to me. That's what empowers us. Um, so yeah, we start with the self-idolatry. But when we meet this Jesus, this God that Colossians 1 speak about, the one who actually deserves to be God, then we can reach that point where we repent we deny ourselves. We so quickly read over that. Do you understand what it means to deny yourself? It means I have no claim on anything anymore. 
Not a claim on happiness, not a claim on possessions, not a claim on anything. I deny everything because I just want Jesus. He will give me whatever I will need. And once you repented and received Him, then you can start this journey. Um, uh, Then our motive is no longer what I can get out of it. But my motive is how can I respond to God's goodness? Lord, send me. I want to respond. Who do I need to go to? Who do I need to love? Who do I need to care for? So yes, change starts in the heart. Find out what the problem is there. Put it to death. Start letting go of the, the evil actions. And then with the space that's left, start putting in love. We're going to look at another one next week. But place love in there so that that starts defining how you speak, how you think, and how you, how you live. Let's pray together. <coughs> Lord, it's also very important to remember that this letter was written to Christians. As a church, we can so often associate, associate ourselves with the lowest common denominator. We look at the church in the world, we look at the church around us, and we think, I guess that's good enough. I guess if I live there, then I live a life worthy of the Lord. But Father, in this letter, we see that your call is so much higher. Your call is so much bigger. You are calling us to deny our evil desires. You are calling us to deny um, self-worship. You are calling us to deny everything that takes the place of you. And so, Father, I want to pray for us as a church. Lord, thank you for the people who has this, Lord, who have this love in them, Lord. And when I look over the church, I see them, people who will give up their last slice of bread for you. People who will give up their time and their energy to serve others. But Lord, let it be true of all of us. Let us always keep on growing on this. That we don't live for what we can get out of life. But that we live because of what we got out of you and from you. Help us with that radical change in our thinking and living. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Just wanted to say, there's a lot of students home for the holidays. I'm very glad to see you. And there's some of the matrix heading for student life and, and teenagers. I want to say something specifically for you in all of this. Student life is built to, is, is designed to help you to build a life with yourself at the center. That's what it is. Because you suddenly start, I'm developing my career now. I'm studying my things. Hopefully you won't have husbands and wives and children and stuff. So all my time is mine. I, my free time I do with my things. My, 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 my. And it builds in you this life where you are at the center and you're the God of your sphere. And then you move out. And then like job is like this interference because oh, now I've got to go to work. And then you get a husband like, ah, oh, he's in my space. What's he doing here? And you get children. Ah, oh, now they're taking my sleep. And it's all because you develop this bubble it was all about you. That's not God's calling. If you're a student here today and you look at the year behind you and everything was about you, you were a sinful student. God has given you time. and ab- Please study. Please don't stop studying. You have to pass. But what did you do with the extra? The extra time, the extra energy. Don't follow the world's example. Don't be conform to the world, but be transformed.
Let's receive the blessing from the Lord. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I hope you were blessed in hearing God's word today. For more information or prayer, please visit our website stillbaybaptist.co.za. May you find your life in Jesus Christ and Him alone.